Good morning, everyone. I'm visiting Riverbend this morning. So, <laughs> came in a bit late. late. It was hilarious. I, I had all my ducks in a row this morning. I rode my bike so that my brain would be working well and um, got here and it was all, I put my clothes in the car for Annie to bring later on and I could put them on, but I didn't realize that she had the choice of bringing Tanya's car. And so <laughs> I'm sitting over there like, what do I do? So <laughs> anyway, God is good. God is good. And what a wonderful privilege we have this morning uh, in thinking about missions together. And I've, I've loved looking at these things. Hasn't someone put in some great effort? I'm guessing Maria Worry um, put in a great effort. I even see some batik over there, which got me excited. Um, looks like possibly Mike Stone Street might have been involved too with the, the planes there. I'm not sure. But it's a privilege for us to, to look at missions together. One of the, the songwriters that I enjoy listening to, just because he's so clever, is a guy called James Rain, an Australian guy, so he must be good. Um, he wrote a really interesting song back in 1999. And the hook line of the song was, I'm not waving, I'm drowning. I'm not waving, I'm drowning. It got my attention because what I'm thinking is there's a person out in the back in the surf and they've got their arm up and the people on the shore don't realize that they're drowning. They think they're waving and so they're all like waving back at this poor guy who's going down. And it's often, I've often thought about that in terms of the unreached. The unreached in this world, people who currently have no opportunity to hear the gospel. You know, we're told that they're happy as they are. We're told that. We think sometimes that if they're sincere enough that God might accept them, sincere enough in their own beliefs. We sometimes think that, well, really all they need is humanitarian aid. They're not waving. They're not waving. They're going down. They're going down. And the message that you have is the only message that can pull them out of the dire situation that they're in. So this passage that we want to look at today, Romans chapter 10, brings clarity to that issue and we need to see with clarity this issue because it's tremendously important, not just for missions, but even for us living here in this nation that is less and less Christian, that has more and more unreached of our own here. We're going to look at this great passage, Romans chapter 10. We're going to read from uh, 11 through 15 together. Let me begin. Verse 11. For Scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Dear Father, we 
have stood in awe this morning of your saving power as it relates to us. We've sung such beautiful songs. We've heard such great passages speaking of your love for us as humans. We're delighted that you've saved us. We're delighted that we have an eternal inheritance in you. Father, please this morning convict our hearts that we may long for other people to have that. Lord, let your word get through to us that we may wonder what part of this process we need to be involved in. Lord, convict us as a group that we may send out many people to take the good news to people who don't have the chance to hear it. So, Father, we we want to open our hearts to you this morning as your word is, is preached to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this passage falls right in the middle of a a well-known and sometimes controversial uh, part of Scripture. It's controversial because it doesn't compute. (laughs) It's a difficult passage from chapter 9 through to chapter 11 where we see so clearly God's sovereignty and salvation in chapter 9. And then we look at chapter 10 and we get this passage. So clearly speaking of people's responsibility to believe and so clearly saying that people must preach two things that stand together and just don't compute, don't fit together. And then seeing the beautiful love of God towards his people Israel and at the same time his desire that the Gentiles may come in, people who have not yet believed. We see the Jews on the one hand spoken in this section of those through whom God sought to glorify himself in this world. They'd received so much from God, every bit of revelation Every bit of grace and kindness and discipline they could have asked for, and yet they threw it back in his face. And yet, even after all of this, after a time of their hardening, they will come back because God will draw them back. And they will look on him, the one whom they have pierced, and mourn for him, and come to Christ through faith. This is what's going to happen. Beautiful God's commitment to his people Israel. Then on the other hand, we see the Gentiles people who have not had those privileges. And we see them spelt out in chapter 1 what these people are like. They had suppressed the knowledge of the truth, which was clearly revealed by God in nature and in their conscience. And because of that, they had drained the cup of sin to its dregs. And they were choking on the consequences. Those consequences were, in chapter 1, foolish thinking, corrupt, oppressive, demonic religion, degrading sexual practices, horrible social practices and strife and worst of all the daily meaninglessness the daily hopelessness of knowing that you are going to hell separated from God forever this is a very accurate description of today's Gentiles the people who have yet to hear about Christ the people who have no share in Christ at this point in time and we see the pictures and we read the books And we decide that they need humanitarian programs, nutritional help, literacy work, all of which they do need. They do need those things. They're important, but it does not meet their main need. It does not meet their main need. A staggering article was written in 2008 by a man called Matthew Paris. It's called, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God. I'm going to read a pretty big chunk out of this. He grew up in Malawi and he went back on a visit to Malawi and he starts writing about it here. 
bear with me as I read it, but think in your mind about A, what he's saying, but B, what a clear example of someone suppressing the truth that God is trying to get through to them as, as I read. He says, It inspired me, this is his visit to Malawi, renewing my flagging faith and development charities, but travelling in Malawi refreshed another belief too, one I've been trying to banish all my life. Interesting. But an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my now growing belief that there is no God. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of the secular NGOs, government projects and international aid efforts, these alone will not do. Education and training will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. I read on. You'll be more shocked. (laughs) This then, the observation, we had friends who were missionaries. And as a child, I often stayed with them. I also stayed alone with my little brother in a traditional rural African village. In the city, we had working for us Africans who had converted and were strong believers. The Christians were always different. Far from having cowed or confined its converts, their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world a directness in their dealings with others that seemed to be missing in traditional African life. They stood tall. Christianity post-Reformation and post-Luther, with its teaching of a direct, personal, two-way link between the individual and God, unmediated by the collective and unsubordinate to any human being, smashes straight through the philosophical, spiritual framework I just described. It offers something to hold on to, to those anxious to cast off a crushing tribal groupthink. That is why and how it liberates. Those who want Africa to walk tall amid 21st century global competition must not kid themselves that providing material means or even the know-how that accompanies what we call development will make the change. A whole belief system must first be supplanted. I'll leave it there. Don't atheists say the darndest things? The greatest need of today's Gentiles is not justice, is not money, is not infrastructure, is not education or internet access. Those things are helpful, those things are good, but they are not their greatest need. They have rejected God. They are alienated from him. They need a way back. And if this is not remedied, then we do them no favours by meeting their physical needs. They're just band-aids on measles. They're not dealing with the, the, the main problem. What our passage says today so beautifully is that there is such a way back. There is a way back for them. They can be reconciled to God. Salvation is available. And God has three important truths to teach us concerning this salvation. These three points are, it's his to give, it's theirs to take, and it's ours to deliver. Let's look at this together. 
It's his to give. This is a fact. God is the one giving. Let's look in verse 11 there. Scripture says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation is God's to give. He's the offended party. He made us. He owns us. But we rebelled against him. What's more, we do it by nature. All of us. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is why we find ourselves described in Romans 5 as ungodly, as sinners, as his enemies. This is how God describes our need. We deserve judgment. We deserve eternal judgment and separation from him. But God provided a salvation that is beautiful, that is rich. And we're going to see that it is deep and it is wide, deep and wide. This salvation is deep and that it's merciful. Look in verse 11. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This is speaking in the future tense, speaking of future judgment. The last judgment. Can you imagine being rejected by God at the final judgment? You won't have excuses. You won't. You'll be utterly laid bare before him and you'll have nothing but your guilt. And God will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Wow. Talk about shame. Talk about tail between your legs as you go away to a hopeless eternity with no way back. And yet God says, you don't have to have it that way. My son bore your shame. That's beautiful. His perfect son experienced God turning his back on him so that God may never turn his back on you. What mercy, what compassion for God to see the state we were in and instead of blasting us, atomizing us. He sent his son for us. It's beautiful. God's salvation is deep in that it's gracious. It says here, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Isn't that a great definition of grace? Bestowing his riches, an undeserved gift from above, something we could never earn. Aren't you glad that God doesn't forgive like you? Aren't I glad that God doesn't forgive like me? You know how you let it go, but the person's in the dog box until they earn their way back into your good graces? So thankful God does not forgive like that. He bestows his riches on us, adopting us as his beloved children. He gives us an eternal inheritance. He makes us a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved. What a God. What a God deep salvation this salvation is also deep because it's effective it's effective 
verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is future tense again, will be saved there. Speaking of our final salvation. This is also speaking in what they call the indicative mood, which states a fact. Will be saved. It's a fact. It will certainly happen. And not a single person who calls upon the name of the Lord will not be saved. It's 100% effective. 100% reliable. One of my favorite verses, and I'm thinking Matthew's as well, is John 6 verse 37. Matt preached on it a couple of times. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Wow. Um, You know that's double negative in the Greek. Powerfully saying never. No, no. They will not be cast out. It is effective. God's salvation is real. God's salvation is reliable. It's beautiful in its generosity. It's stunning in its compassion. It's deep. God's salvation is also wide. It's wide. It's not for one select race. It's not for one social group. It's not for one decile. Word is that in the Roman church there were many Jews at the time this was written. And you know what a struggle it was in the first century, thinking of exclusivity, that you had to somehow become Jewish to be saved in many people's minds. Think of how these verses must have confronted that. Read from verse 11 with me. Let me um, bring out a few things there. That just would have been a slap in the face to exclusivity. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between uh, Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Very powerful, very clear. What's more, the word Lord there, uh, this is a quote from Joel 2.32. It's in all capitals when you read it uh, in the Old Testament there. That means it's the name Yahweh. The name Yahweh. Their covenant name for God. Their God. His revealed name to them. And he says, no, I am not just your possession. I am not your local deity. I'm the God of all the earth. His offer of salvation is for all peoples. All peoples. This is so explicitly set out in Revelation 5, 9 to 10. One of my favorite passages. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, and people, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Wow. It's wide. So God's salvation is deep. It's wide. It's glorious in its beauty. But we have to see that the only way to attain that is as narrow as it could be. Utterly exclusive. Utterly exclusive. What do I mean by that? Well, who is this Lord, this Yahweh, that people must call on to be saved? If you follow the teaching from verse 5 through to 17, 
you'll see clearly there that the one that needs to be trusted, believed, called upon and confessed as Lord is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. It all hangs on him. And the Bible is absolutely unapologetic about this. It must be through Jesus Christ. You know the verses. You've memorized them. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I see some nodding heads there with their kids that you memorized that one. Nobody comes to the Father but by Christ. Very explicit. Peter declared in Acts 4, verse 12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is not open to negotiation. It's God's to give. It's God's to give. And no one gives like God. The second important truth we need to see here is that it's theirs to take. They must receive it. They must receive the Savior. Let's look at verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we've seen already that Christ is this Lord that must be called upon. But what does it mean to call upon his name? Well, the name, of course, encompassed the entire person, who he is. So to call upon his name is to come to him in acceptance of and submission to all that he is. That's calling on the name of the Lord. It's pretty specific. You come to Jesus in acknowledgement of all he is and of all he's done. And you agree, agree with him about who you are and how he sees you. And that your only way to come to salvation is to come through him. This is to call upon the name of the Lord, responding to him in faith. And this is described in a number of ways in Scripture, responding to him in faith. In John 1.12, those who received him as opposed to rejecting him, those who received him did so by believing in his name. In Acts 2.37-38, to 38, when the people cried out to Peter at Pentecost and said, what shall we do to be saved? He told them to repent. Repent. We see that repeated later in chapter 17, where we see that God commands all people everywhere to repent. What's that meaning? It's not a promise to do better. It's, it's turning from your old life. Turning from your rejection of him. Turning, of all, turning from all that meant and coming to him as your Lord. So important. Further on in chapter 6, we see that a great many priests became obedient to the faith. Well, if it's a command, I guess you better obey it, right? This is turning to our God in faith. Important. And what's important in all these cases is that only those who show these traits, only those who turn to Christ, only those who believe, only those who repent in the way we're being told of there, only they will be saved. Very clear, and you can't get around that in Scripture. John chapter 3 makes this incredibly clear. Let me read from verse 14 again. I know you're very familiar with this passage. As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. You don't have to reject Christ to be lost. This is not what this passage is teaching. Uh, the, The condemned already there is in the perfect tense. This is a completed past action with ongoing consequences. They were already condemned. Why were they condemned? Because of their sin, because of their rejection of God, because of their suppression of the truth. They were already condemned. A lifeline is offered to them. They reject it. There is no hope. They were already condemned. They failed to take the only way out. There are some who believe that those who have never heard will somehow be saved because of their ignorance. It's, it's a comfortable thought, but it's a thought that flies in the face of Scripture. Flies in the face of Scripture. It flies in the face of today's passage. They can't call on Christ and be saved if they haven't believed and they can't believe in what they've never heard. Very clear. They must hear to believe and to be saved. Secondly, this idea turns the good news into bad news. Try and think with me for a minute. We'll, we'll, we'll have a stab. You think of all of the gospel presentation that's ever happened on the earth since the resurrection of our Lord. Think of all the gospel presentation that's happened. About what percent would you say of people believed? Would you go crazy and say 5% of all the people who have ever heard the gospel? Maybe 5% believed? Maybe 10% believed? Wow. Those preachers condemned 90% of their audience to hell by telling them the truth. If they would have been better off in their ignorance, don't preach. (laughs) I would never preach if that was the case. Never. This is not true. People are not saved through their ignorance. And finally, the Bible does not speak of unbelievers as innocent. And it doesn't even speak of them as ignorant. We saw earlier what Romans 1 says that the unreached see God's creation and they suppress the urge to praise him. They suppress the urge to worship him. And God gave them over to the sin of their own hearts. We see also in chapter 2 of Romans that they have a conscience. But that conscience will damn them on the day of judgment. They are without excuse It says very clearly there in chapter 1, they see it all, they reject it, and they're without excuse. We must accept and affirm that only those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved because that's what the scriptures say. The last point here is that it's ours to deliver, ours to deliver this salvation. It's God's to give. They must receive it. And we must deliver it. Look at verse 14. 
But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Well, you'll notice that this is not a command. You'll notice that it's not a suggestion. What it is is a statement of fact, a statement of truth. And it's one that must affect us, one that must impact us. Martin Luther set this out beautifully in five points. And he speaks from the bottom up as we look at these. Let me read them to you. It is impossible that those preach who are not sent. It is impossible that those hear who are without a preacher. It is impossible that they believe who do not hear. It is impossible that they call on him who do not believe. It is impossible that they who do not call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see how clearly he sets that out? It can't happen. It can't happen. It can't happen. It can't happen. This is an unbroken chain that goes back right into verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call? Who's that? That's everyone. So it's speaking generally here, even though later on it goes on to discuss uh, Israel's disobedience. Right here we're talking generally. How will anyone, Jew or Gentile, call out in faith to a Lord they've never heard of. They can't, they won't, and they'll die in their sins. So the conclusion here is that preachers need to be sent. If you distill it all down, preachers need to be sent. A preacher in this context is someone who declares the gospel, the word of Christ. And what's staggering is that they literally become the voice of Christ to the unbeliever. The NASB translates this rightly because it takes out the of. The of is not there. It says, uh, how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Not of whom. Whom they have not heard. People don't just need to hear about Christ. They need to hear Christ. They need to hear him. This is what we read in 2 Corinthians 5.20, isn't it? Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What a staggering thought. Staggering responsibility. Do the words I say and the gospel I preach thoroughly represent Christ? Don't ever criticize people who strive for accuracy and clarity in preaching the gospel. Don't criticize them. It's not a small issue. May it never be that I put words in Christ's mouth. May it never be that I misrepresent my Lord. He desires to speak through us. Does my bearing, my manner, my love and attitude thoroughly represent Christ? 
when I'm preaching the gospel, do people sense that this is not a debate? This is not a contest of ideas. This is not me proving I'm smarter than them. It's an earnest plea from a merciful God. I need to hear Christ. As you represent him in your workplace or school or family, do people see and hear Christ? If they refuse to listen, don't take it personally. Christ is pleading with them through you and they're rejecting him. For the missionary, this drive for accuracy and clarity and godly example motivates us to set aside the time we need to understand how people communicate, to learn their language, to learn how they tick, to let the Lord change who we are, change our personality, change our traits, change our name sometimes. That when they hear us, they hear Christ because Christ is not a foreigner. He's not a Kiwi. He's not an Aussie. He's the Lord of all the earth. And he's their Lord. And they must hear him. They must hear him. There are no shortcuts to that. It drives us to thoroughly and clearly teach the gospel too. No shortcuts. Why? Because so there's no misunderstanding. They must hear Christ. They must hear him. Is that something you'd be willing to give your life to? Letting someone hear Christ. Over half of the world lives with little or no opportunity to even hear about Christ. Could you be one who's sent? You know, there are many cogs in the wheel of missions. Some of the guys who came and visited us recently will have seen that. Obviously, there are church planters. Obviously, there are Bible translators. But we need linguistic consultants. We need Bible translation consultants. We need administrators. We have church planters doing administration. We need teachers. We need pilots. Any part of what is going to bring people the gospel there are a lot of chains involved there. We went to the field when we were 37. You don't need to be 25. You guys are over 80, I'll let you off. What I love about the grey-haired crew is how, how often they will come and say, I pray for you every day. You know, when the strength's gone, you know where your strength lies, right? It's a beautiful thing. What's your part? If God is laying something on your heart, if God is making you uncomfortable, don't say no to him. Don't say no to God. Don't busy yourself with other stuff and hope the feeling will go away. This is God. Don't let other things distract your attention so you just shut them out. Think about that. It's interesting also that this passage emphasizes that preachers are to be sent. Preachers are to be sent. First and foremost, any true preacher is going to be sent by God. No doubt about it. God is the one that's carrying out his plan of salvation through us. And to an extent, every one of us is uniquely placed by God into our families and workplaces as his preachers. 
And we need to let that impact us. But there are also those whom God has called to go further afield to the many who have no opportunity to hear the gospel. And this was certainly the case with Paul. He was explicitly sent by God, wasn't he? Explicitly sent. But have you ever noticed how explicitly that happened through his church? Through his church. Paul and Barnabas did not come to their church and say, hey, we're feeling burdened about missions. Interesting. Have a look with me at Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. I don't want to dissuade you from coming to your elders and saying, hey, I'm feeling interested in missions. (laughs) Please do that. But I want you to see how crucial the church is. Acts chapter 13, just verses 1 to 4. Now there were in the church at Antioch, 13 verse 1, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, that's Paul, while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. See how much that's the church? Look again at verse 4. That is from God. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. It was through their church, it was clearly through their church that God did this. Paul was never a lone ranger. Never. He always saw his ministry as the outreach of the church. It was the church who sent him. It was the church who supported him often financially. It was they to whom, for, uh, upon whom he relied so heavily for prayer that he may be bold, that he may be clear in what he preached. They were his co-workers. They were his encouragers. They refreshed his spirit. They were the ones to whom he was accountable remember how after each, each journey he comes back to his sending church at Antioch there? Very clear. Paul's ministry was the ministry of the church. This is how God works. We don't just let people go. That may have been our past, but it's not what the Bible teaches. We don't just let them go. We seek them out and we send them out. Matt alluded to a quote from William Carey. He nicked it off me. Um, he already knew it, actually. But Before he left for India, William Carey, he was the what we call the father of modern Protestant missions, went to India. Wow. People didn't even know about India at the time. He just knew it was a dangerous pagan place, a place that was dark, a place that didn't have the gospel. And he grabbed his family, stuck him on a boat and went. Amazing, And as he spoke to his friends, he used a mining metaphor. He says, I'll go down into the pit, thinking of just this darkness where you go down, lowered in by a rope, and you disappear from sight. People can't see you. He said, I'll go down into the pit if you hold the rope. And as he said that to his friends, a guy called, particularly a guy called Andrew Fuller, his friends covenanted with him 
at that point in time that as long as they lived, they would never let go of the rope. When we send people out, they represent us. They still belong to us. They remain our responsibility. And we don't let go. We don't let go. So salvation is wonderfully offered by God. No one gives like God. Salvation is desperately needed by those who are lost. Without it, they remain lost and they will die in their sins. And it's only available when we send people to preach the gospel. It's the only way it's available to them. Let's pray. Father, your offer to us as mankind is astounding. We are so clearly your enemies. We have shut you out in so many ways and suppressed your truth and refused to look at the glory of your creation, refused to look at the beauty of your character, refused to praise you as we should of the, the very works of your hands. And yet you sent your son to die for us. That's a shock, Lord. That's an amazing thing, amazing love, amazing grace, amazing mercy that you would send your son to die for us. And Father, please draw our minds to the many people who don't have the hope that we have, who can't sing these songs, who can't partake of communion, who can't open your word at this point in time because they don't know anything about it. Father, convict us, burden us, that we wouldn't just think of our own lives, that we wouldn't just live for ourselves, that we wouldn't just think of the here and now, but that we may serve you as you will in this world, that this church may send out many missionaries, many people to take your gospel. Lord, bless your gospel outreach in this community. Bless each one that's involved in that strengthen them, encourage them, provide for them, fill them with the hope and the fear that they speak the very words of Christ. And Father, touch us all that we may live in these realities that those who do not hear cannot believe and cannot be saved. Thank you, Father, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.